Well, it's good to be back with you again this morning, and uh, we are going to be in the book of Acts, and uh, this is the third part of a three-part series, though I didn't number them when we first began the series. Uh, it is a three-part series. We started with the church empowered, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday, I shared with you the church equipped for service. And so we've been empowered, and now we've been equipped. And this morning, I want to share with you the church engaged in ministry. It's one thing to have the power of the Holy Spirit. It's another thing to be equipped to do the work that God has called us to do. But we must take the empowerment and the equipping and put it to use. And in this context, as we're looking at the early church, the first church in Jerusalem, we're going to see how they were empowered and equipped and were engaged in ministry. Specifically this morning within the body of believers and how they were caring for one another, but also with the preaching and the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we put all of those three elements together, we find that this is a church that we should be, even today, for the context in which the church began to grow is really no different than the context in which the church today is to respond and to serve. We are the body of Christ, Jesus' church, his bride, and he has called us to service. And that's what this passage is about. In the early church, uh, things were starting to grow. There was excitement even in the midst of uh, maybe some oppression, some, some challenges. Uh, but they were new. They were like a young baby uh, that's starting to grow. And, and they don't know better. They haven't seen all the things ahead of them uh, that they may have had or are going to experience. Uh, they're new. Uh, they're naive about things. And I kind of think the early church was in that context uh, they didn't know what they were getting into. They just knew that, that God loved them, that Jesus died for their sin, that they had received his uh, love and his forgiveness by grace, that, that they had eternal life, and they were coming together. There were no books, no how-tos, no seminars, no webinars. Uh, there was nothing for them to draw upon other than the Holy Spirit bringing them together in unity and in purpose. And I think, wow, what a great way to be. If we didn't have all of the other voices around us, how would we function just following the, the Spirit's leading? Because the Spirit unites. He doesn't divide. Uh, he drives us in the same direction. He keeps us in alignment with the will and the purpose of God. And I really see that's where the early church was. And I think that's where today's church must be. It's an exciting time. It's something that we should be involved in, something that we should be working toward. So this morning I want to talk to you about the church engaged. Here was a body of believers from every, uh, every different background, and, and they had gathered there for the Pentecost, uh, for the Passover, uh, when the Pentecost took place, when, when they were, had come from different nations, they were different languages, God had moved, the Spirit had worked, they were speaking in different languages so everybody could hear the Word of God, kind of a microcosm of, of what's going to take place in the kingdom of God when we're all there gathered around the throne of God. 
from every tribe, nation, people, and language. What an exciting time that will be. What a glorious place that will be. Worshiping the Lamb. Well, here's a microcosm of that at the very beginning as God is drawing them together. And the church now is to be engaged and engaged in ministry because this is the demonstration of what the empowerment and what the equipping was to do. Now, the equipping was early on. There was a lot that they needed to learn, but the Holy Spirit equips us with giftedness and the fruit of the Spirit. He helps us be prepared for the work of ministry that we're supposed to be doing. As the church grew and developed, as they began to study and understand, God began to equip them even further for leadership and all of the other aspects of what the church was supposed to be. And so in our passage, we'll read from Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. And then I want to share some things with you that I think are exciting and should be exciting in the body of Christ. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought, them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I think there's some interesting things here that we can learn from this early church. The first thing is this, that they were of one heart and one mind. It's the most important thing of all. The word heart has the idea of feeling. It, it has the idea of emotion. It, it's a driving force within us. Uh, they felt the same way about who they were, what they were doing, where they were going, what they were up against, all the challenges that they had in life. They were of one heart. They were not divided in any sense or in any way. One heart and one mind. They were ready to serve and do whatever it took to be brought together and, and function as the body of Christ. If you can imagine, out of the context of their culture, out of all the things that they had been raised with and they had learned, whether they were Jew or whether not Jew, generally in this sense they were, were mainly Jews, but now everything was different. There's a new covenant. There's a new hope. Uh, there, there's a new purpose in their life. They're, they're coming out of this society, uh, which is, is uh, problems. Uh, they're dealing with issues in their life. Becoming a Christian could have cost them their lives or their family. And so they're coming together because the Holy Spirit is bringing them together so they can have support and fellowship and worship and understanding about who they are now as new believers in Jesus Christ. One heart and one mind, they were in alignment with the Holy Spirit and with one another. There has to be unity for real fellowship that will bind the body of Christ together in order for the church to accomplish its purpose. When there's unity in the body, there's strength in the body. Uh, there's engagement in the body. 
when we're all together in one focus, one mind, one heart, when we're all focused on the cross of Jesus Christ, God is able to work through the body as a whole to accomplish greater things. Now, it's wonderful when we have people within a church, within a body of Christ, uh, who are just on fire for the Lord. Uh, They're serving. They're doing everything they can. But there's only so much that they can accomplish in and of themselves, or even a small group, or, or, or a few people that are reaching out in their community. When the whole body comes together, they're in one heart and one mind. They're able to focus and hear the Holy Spirit speak to them and drive them all the same way. And what a powerful impact that has. So why doesn't that happen? Well, Satan has two purposes in life. He is our adversary. Uh, He is the the liar. Uh, He is the one who seeks to destroy and tear down. Uh, He is the wolf in sheep's clothing. He really has two purposes in mind. His first purpose is to keep people from coming to Christ. And one of the ways I think that he accomplishes that is when he can bring a division within the body of Christ, when he can bring conflict in the body of Christ, and the world outside the body of Christ sees that, and they think, wow, why would I want to be a part of that if they're just like the world, if they're not unified, if they're in chaos, if they're in conflict, if they're unforgiving, why would I want to be a part of that? I'm already living in a world like that. And I think that's one way he keeps people from coming to know Jesus Christ because the testimony of the body of Christ not being unified is just like that of the world. The second thing that he focuses on is as a person comes to Christ, they are born again through faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They've confessed their sins. They've repented of their sins. They're now a new believer. If he can ruin their testimony then he's accomplished the second thing that's most important to him. Because the world looks at God's people as as followers of Christ, and we're saying one thing, we're doing one thing, but when we step out and we are in rebelliousness against God, when our testimony falls before the world, when we give in to those temptations and don't deal with them, when the church doesn't help us stay in line with the, walk, with, with the true walk of Jesus Christ representing him in this world, uh, and we've seen some evidence of that even recently from, from strong spiritual leaders who have uh, all of a sudden the information's come out. Uh, They were involved in some things, and the testimony is ruined. And listen, when your testimony is ruined, it affects the testimony of this body of Christ as well. And it certainly reflects who Jesus Christ is. Satan is very good at what he does. And he loves keeping people from coming to Christ, if he can, and destroying the testimony of those who claim Jesus Christ. Which is why it's so important for those who are, belong to Jesus that we stay in unity with one another, in fellowship with one another, accountable to no, one another, uh, responsible for one another, uh, strengthening one another, helping one another as we walk through this life. It doesn't mean we're never going to have a sin problem because like Paul said, I, I have to beat myself daily because I don't do the things I should do and I, I do the things I shouldn't do. Listen, we're still struggling with that. But the strength of the body of Christ and the unity of the body of Christ being in one heart and one mind helps us stay where we need to stay in our walk. 
and seeks to help restore those who have fallen. Now, the outside world doesn't understand that. But the less we have of people who say one thing and then do another, who involve themselves in the things of the world, and it becomes evident to that world, the less we will have of Satan's victories in destroying and keeping the church from being effective. This isn't the case with the early church. In its innocence, it seems that it was focused on four things. It was absorbing the truth of Christ. Just like a sponge, when a new believer comes to Christ, uh, most of the time, they cannot get enough of God's word. And that's the exciting thing about somebody who's a new believer. They want to dig in. And when I became a new believer, one of the first things I wanted to do was read the book of Revelation because I wanted to know how this thing ended. Boy, was I disappointed. I still don't understand. <laughs> and honestly, we're not supposed to. Uh, it would mess our lives up if we knew the end of this thing. <laughs> we know he's coming. Uh, he's going to come as a thief in the, lot, in the night. When he's ready at his time, nobody knows what time that is. So we've got to keep on moving, keep on growing, keep on serving. But a new believer gets excited. They want to learn more and more of who Jesus is. The second thing is that they are embracing those who are Christ because now they have a new family. And though, yes, they may have a strong family, a biological family, uh, but now they have a new family, a spiritual family that understands them differently, that loves them eternally, that cares for them and seeks to support them daily. That's a new family that, that we should be excited about. Third, they were proclaiming the good news of Christ. The, the disciples, the apostles were preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. They were hearing it. They were sharing it with their friends. Listen, the apostles did not do all of this on their own. As, as the gospel spread, it was being shared from one to another, to another, to another, and it was going throughout. Everybody was telling of the good news of Jesus Christ. And fourth, they were ministering to those who had needs in the body. They were loving one another and caring for one another in a way that was strengthening the church. So the church was of one heart, one mind. Secondly, they shared everything. Notice what happened here. It says, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. This was not dictated by the apostles. They didn't say, oh, now that you're a believer, you don't own, any, you don't own anything. You have to give it to the church. Uh, there's been attempts of that over the history of the church, unfortunately. This was driven by the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, their priorities of what was important changed. They recognized that everything that they had had been given them by God. Oh, that we could remember that today. In fact, we really don't own anything. Everything we have has been given to us by God. Our families, our, our work, everything we have. He has entrusted it to us for his glory and his purpose. We're simply stewards of it and are supposed to be good stewards of it. They understood that long before any stewardship campaigns ever came out, before any great big benevolent programs came out. They recognized it because they were involved with one another. They had relationships with one another. It says that they shared everything 
everything that they had, they recognized God's ownership. This selflessness was not dictated. It was a voluntary act of sharing. Everything had been reprioritized now that they were new believers. It is not a natural behavior, behavior for us just to share. Put a group of two-year-olds in a room with a bunch of new toys and give them a little bit of time. And guess what? You're going to find conflict over those toys. At some point, those little loving two-little-year-old kids are going to want to pull on a toy from one another or go take it from one another. That's that sin nature in us. That's that thing where, where we want what we want. And we'll do what we need to get it. The only difference between two-year-olds and adults is that we have different toys and bigger ideas about them. That's the only big difference. We still want more toys. Wars and problems have been developed because we want more land. We want more property. We want more power. We might want more things to control. And we'll share occasionally, but we don't see the needs. And we don't sacrificially share to help meet those needs because we're holding too much onto our own things, which aren't ours in the first place. They're God's. They didn't have that problem, it doesn't seem, in the early church. They were not fighting over those kinds of things. But over time, and it didn't take very long for this to happen, it became a problem within the church. In fact, James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, it didn't take very long for the sinfulness of our hearts for possessions and things and power to begin to infiltrate the body of Christ. It was a problem then, and James had to deal with it. We can read about it in other parts of the New Testament as well. That is what had grown in the church over time and still affects the church today. Personal preference, personal desires, personal wants. Remember, if we are a unified body of Christ and we're all looking at the cross... We're all seeking to hear from God. We're in unity together in prayer and in ministry and in caring. God will minimize those things within the body. They'll never go away until we get into the kingdom. But we should seek to minimize those things as much as possible. I can't figure out why the church has to fight over temporary and earthly things when they could stay focused on Jesus and the eternal things that we're supposed to be focused on. Church history has given us a terrible example of that. And we, like everyone else, don't seem to want to learn from our history and look for a new day. I could tell you stories of churches that have imploded because of hate and greed and anger and pride and power struggles. That's not the body of Christ that Jesus put together that's a human sinfulness that has infiltrated the body of Christ. The more unified the followers of Christ are, the bigger the impact they will have. The third thing is, is that it says that they testified of the resurrection with great power. That word is dunamis, where we get dynamite from. Boom! 
The, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. You notice the correlation between God's grace being upon them and the testimony of the resurrected Jesus Christ. As the church is involved in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, as we preach the resurrection of Christ, God's grace comes upon the church. His favor, his love, his mercy. It's when we're not doing anything that God's not glorified. When we're preaching the wrong thing. It's easy for us to go out and talk about how great uh, our, our study group is or how great our, our worship is or, or what a great facility we have or how many wonderful programs that we have in the church. That was not an issue in the first church because they only had one thing to proclaim, the resurrected Jesus Christ who went and died on the cross for our sin, who overcame sin and death through his bodily resurrection and opened up the very gates of heaven for every person who would place their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior. Sometimes we're focusing on the wrong message. We're talking about all the things of the church instead of the one who created the church, Jesus Christ and him alone. You see, we have to recognize that sometimes our leadership, and sometimes we get so caught up in dealing with all the problems within the church that we forget about the message of the church. Now, you can think about this, and many of you have experienced this, especially when people are in COVID-19 and you're having to stay home with your kids and you're having to work from home and you've got a, a number of little kids running around and you're trying to do your work on your computer or in your own office. When they are playing together in, in unity and, and happiness, you get a lot of work done. But man, when they are at one another, you spend all your time hearing the conflict, trying to settle the conflict, trying to keep them from, you know, knocking each other off a table or hitting each other with a table. I'll tell you, it's crazy. Now, I'm going to confess. I have two brothers, an older brother, a younger brother. My older brother is 18 months older than I am. My younger brother is two years younger than I am. We drove my mother crazy. Back, back in Omaha, about 1954, 55 56, somewhere around in there. Uh, there's a story about the three of us in our little house running around through the dining room, through the little kitchen, out into the living room. Just, I mean, we were being terrors. We would not settle down. And, uh, and we were playing cowboys and Indians. Now, we got to remember the context. This is way back in the 50s where you could do things and not get thrown in jail for them. <laughs> My mom's dad uh, came into the house and he found me and my two brothers tied in our little red rocking chairs that each of us had. And he came in and he, he said, what in the world is going on? What, what, what are you doing? She said, well, they were playing cowboys and Indians, and I won. And then she, had, she, had, she had tied us in our chairs. <laughs> you know, you can't do that today. But... Uh, you know, when the body of Christ is in conflict and, and there's problems and, and the, the leadership and, and the ministers are having to spend all their time trying to put out those fires and, and the deacons trying to deal with things, just think how that draws the energy and the effectiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ away. That's why the unity is so important. And, and, and pastors and leaders and deacons can't come along and just tie you to a chair. They just can't do it. 
It's not acceptable anymore today. I'm not sure. Maybe it wouldn't be a good idea. Number four, they sacrificed for the needy. Notice what it says. There were no needy persons among them. None. There weren't any. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone as had need. Remember, this was voluntary. They saw the needs. They wanted to help. And there were those who were rich and poor, bond and slave, those from different countries, those who maybe did, had different languages, but they were part of the body of Christ. And everybody who was in the body of Christ, because they were a unified body of Christ, were sensitive to the needs of everyone within the body of Christ. And those who were capable and had the financial means or had properties were taking and selling those properties because they recognized that the property wasn't as important as meeting the needs of those who were struggling, who were poor, who, who needed the help. They were willing openly and, and, and joyously to sell those properties and give it to the apostles and trust that they were going to provide for those who had need the most. Wow. What a concept. What a concept. Notice a few things from this. First, it shows the diversity of the early church. Professional people and common laborers, people from every background and, and experience. Now, there were political people and citizens. They were all gathered together. It was a very diverse church. Second, it wasn't a mandatory sale of land or homes. It was voluntary. It indicates that it didn't happen all the time, but it was occasional. As somebody was recognizing there were more needs, God would lay it upon their heart to sell a piece of property. They willingly would go do it, and they would lay the funds at the apostles' feet. Third, it seemed to be based on the awareness of people's need. When there was a sense that somebody in the body was hurting, the Holy Spirit urged those who had property and homes to sell them. And fourth, the distribution was based on need. Now, there's a lot of things going on today and a lot of needs. Some are real needs and some are perceived needs. And I'm absolutely convinced that sometimes we get caught up in trying to meet perceived needs instead of real needs. And the difference is a perceived need is what you think the need is. A real need is what you see as being a need. It's not just that everybody needs food. It's that there are people who really need Food, and you focus on those real needs, not the perceived needs or not the popular needs. Because we can get caught up in the beneficial or, or, or the, the benevolence concept of where we're just going to give everybody anything we have and understand that many of those people, they're not really in need. Uh, they're taking advantage of your, your generosity. Real needs come from relationships people that you serve with, people you worship with, people that you live next door to, when you see them struggle, when you know they're having a hard time, when somebody's lost a job, when somebody's been in the hospital, you understand that, you pray for them. Those are real needs, not perceived needs. And that's how it was in the early church. They knew one another. 
to the extent that when somebody was in need, they were willing to make the generous sacrifice of meeting it by selling their property. When a culture of sacrificial giving is present in the body of Christ, needs are met. And I pray we will always have that culture of generous giving in the body. By the way, there was no tax exemption for their giving either back in those days. That had no motive for them in meeting the needs. The fifth thing, and I'll, I'll finish up just about almost with this. <laughs> there is the example of the encourager. The last thing, he, he identifies an individual, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now this follows in line with the giving and generous giving and recognition of needs, but it specifically mentions Barnabas, and, and he's called the son of encouragement. Now he was a Levite. Levites were not supposed to... Uh, own property, uh, but it's felt that probably by this time uh, when in, in Jewish culture there were some who did, and we don't understand exactly why he owned the property, but he did and he was willing to give it. The apostles had nicknamed him Barnabas, uh, and this is a wonderful nickname, born out of his exceptional heart to encourage others. The Greek word is Paraclesis, and it means consolation or exhortation. And I just want to point out two passages here uh, related to Barnabas because, folks, if we need anything in the body of Christ, along with all we've been talking about, we need encouragers. We need people to encourage one another because these are difficult times, as they always have been, but we need people to come alongside and encourage us and strengthen us and help us to know it's okay and I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to help you on your journey. Acts 9 verses 26 through 28 talking about Saul who ultimately became the Apostle Paul. It says when he came to Jerusalem, talking about Paul, he tried to join the disciples. Now remember, he was a persecutor of the church who after meeting Christ on the Damascus Road became a proclaimer of the gospel and God taught him for three years and now he was ready to be engaged and to go out and proclaim the good news. But he could not join with the disciples and so it says that they were all afraid of him because Paul had been putting people in prison. That's why they were afraid not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles. He told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas was that connector. He was the guy that was an encourager. He saw what Paul had been doing, preaching, teaching. He had seen his heart. He brought him together with the apostles and connected them, and they were now able to serve together in trust. He also... In Acts chapter 11, 22 through 26, it says that news reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem about what was going on in Antioch. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was an encourager. I wonder if we were to draw out a 
scale from one to ten and think about how we encourage others. I wonder where we might rate ourselves. Sometimes we're too caught up in wanting somebody to come minister to us when in fact we need to be ministering to others. I know on occasion I've had to encourage people, don't wait for somebody to come to you. You initiate it. The Holy Spirit's in you just like it is them. Go initiate it. Encourage them. Strengthen them in the Lord. Help them along their journey. He was an encouragement because he was a generous man. He was an encourager when no one else would step up to help someone. It seems he would do it. He was an engaging man who affected the lives of those who knew him. He was a good man who saw the best in others and he encouraged them to meet their potential in serving Christ. He was a sacrificial man who thought of others before himself. And the scripture says to look out for the welfare of others before yourself. All those characteristics we should strive for in our own walk with Jesus. Let me give you three applications here. Number one, we can do much more together than we can individually. There's no lone soldiers in the army of God. We're all part of the body. We're part of the family. We have to work together. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So the question simply is, where is your treasure? What do you treasure most in your life? Our treasures are in heaven, not on earth. And third, meeting the needs of others glorifies Christ. And Jesus said it in Matthew 25 when he said, For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. You see, we need a unified body of Christ. We need a generous, sacrificial body of Christ. We need a body of Christ that is so united that when it senses and sees the needs, the true needs of those around them. They're willing to sacrifice to help meet those needs. And we need encouragers, folks, because these are challenging times. It's always been challenging, but we need others to come walk alongside each other through this journey. Sacrificing for others opens the door to the gospel to be shared. I think that's a very true statement. As we've looked at this, I think that we can ask the question, Lord, this is a church that I would want to be a part of. This is a body of believers in this early church from the things that we've looked at. This is what the church should be. It's about the people. 
It's about their relationship with Christ. It's about their love for one another and for the Lord. It's about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and living in unity with one another. That's an ideal place to be. And it's not an ideal place that we cannot achieve or experience if we get ourselves out of the way and let Christ rule in our lives together. That comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the question this morning is, do you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life? If you were to die today, would you be in his kingdom? Jesus died to save you from your sin. He died to pay a price for your sin that you could never pay, that you might have a relationship with Jesus Christ and have an eternal life with him forever. We do that by acknowledging our sin and we confess it before God. Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I want to turn from my way of following my life direction. I want to follow Jesus Christ. In repentance, I want to turn things around. I trust and absolutely believe that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient to pay for my sin. Forgive me of my sin and give me everlasting life. The Bible says he'll do that. The Holy Spirit will come into your heart and make you a new creation. The old's gone, the new began. And that's what we're seeing here, the new beginning. And then God will begin to grow you and use you as one of his children to impact the world for Jesus. Maybe you need to make that decision today. Just simply make a heartfelt prayer and asking God to forgive you of your sins after you confess and repent. Believer, you're part of the body, like it or not. You're going to live in unity in the kingdom, and you're not going to be worried about all this stuff down here. But why wait? <laughs> why wait till then? Let's get unified. Let's focus on the things that are important to God, not to man. And let's be the body of Christ that makes the impact in this world that it needs to make, especially in times of, of difficulty like now, when the world needs to see and hear the truth of his love for them and the hope that only he can offer them. Father, I thank you this morning for your word and how you have uh, helped us to see something in this early church, this, this new uh, grouping of believers, the people of faith in Jesus Christ, as they were caring and loving and, and unifying and generous in their giving and, and watching for one another as they were proclaiming the kingdom of God to a lost world. And we know that Satan was, was quickly uh, to come in and seek to divide and keep people from coming to Christ. But Lord, uh, greater is he that is in those who are Christ than he that is in the world. He has no power over those who will uh, not allow him to take control or to tempt them or to lead them into things that are divisive and conflicting within the body. Help us to stay unified in Christ. Help us to look out for one another's needs. Help us to be sacrificial in everything that we do and help us represent Jesus Christ, a true reflection of him and his love for the world out in the world so that others will come to know him as Savior and Lord. Father, we want to glorify you through this and honor you. And we want Jesus' name to be lifted up. May you be glorified and honored as we respond to you in faith this morning, as we make personal commitments, as we confess personal sin, and as we seek to be unified as one body of believers for one great purpose, your kingdom and your glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Uh, we're going to close here in just a few minutes, but we do have uh, some announcements. So if Merv will come up and Gregory and uh, Ben, if you three will come up, we're going to uh, uh, have some announcements from these men uh, about your church. And let me just say, I, I love your, your pastors. I love your leadership here. Uh, I love how God has been working and, uh, and through many challenges over the last couple of years. Uh, but you have some very faithful and committed leaders in this body of, of Christ. And, uh, and I, I pray that you continue to pray for them, encourage them, strengthen them in the Lord as they uh, uh, make decisions and as they lead you uh, in serving him. Amen. Thank you, Pastor John. My name is not Barnabas, but I do bring a word of encouragement this morning. My name is Merv Jersak. I'm the chairman of the pastoral search team um, here at Hoffmantown. And I just want to let you know that two weeks from today, on September 13th, our candidate for lead pastor of Hoffmantown Church will preach to our congregation. And... And uh, immediately after he preaches, that afternoon, we will give you a chance to vote on calling him as our lead pastor. As chair of our search committee, I want to introduce you to him briefly this morning by way of credential. He is not here personally. Um, and then Ben Wine and Gregory, will, Gregory Elder will speak on behalf of the elders and pastors as well. They have been involved with the pastor search team as we have brought candidates forward. Uh, and at the end of all of that, Kirby Jefferson, who is uh, the chairman of our church council, will provide a roadmap for us as a church in terms of how it is that we are to vote according to the guidelines within our bylaws. So all of this has been um, kind of set up for today. Our candidate, his name is Lamar Morin. Um, some of you may or may not know that name, but he is what I would consider God's nugget to us who has been hiding in plain sight because he works about a half a mile that way at the Baptist Church, uh, at the Baptist Convention of New Mexico. Um, he was referred to us by his boss, Dr. Joe Bunce, who is the executive director of the convention. Lamar Morin currently heads up the leadership development team for our state, for the convention. Lamar is married to Lynn Morin. He himself has lived most of his life here in New Mexico. His wife Lynn is a New Mexico native, having been born and raised in Roswell. They met in college and began in the ministry together shortly after they were married. They have four sons, they have six grandchildren, um, his oldest, their oldest son is in the medical field, actually moving now, finishing his fellowship, moving now to Phoenix. Their other three sons are in the ministry, both here in New Mexico and abroad. Lynn uh, herself is a registered nurse working at Loveless's, Loveless Women's Care, for, caring for moms and babies. She is a great supporter of Lamar in his ministry, and Lamar and she both will attest that they work best together as a team in the ministry. They make their home in Northwest Albuquerque. 
Um, one of the things, we're going to give you some more information than what I have even now, but one of Lamar's great loves is for children and youth, and he places a huge priority on Sunday school, on teaching, and on disciple-making is what he'll call, and you'll, you'll learn a little more about that. As a preacher, he is expository in nature, in his approach. He preaches what the text says, and then brings the application out of that particular text. Prior to moving to Albuquerque to take the leadership position here at Baptist Convention of New Mexico, Lamar and Lynn served faithfully at First Baptist in Bloomfield. Um, for the first 13 years while he was there, he was the executive pastor and the pastor over the worship and the education ministries during the time that Dr. Bunce was the senior pastor there. When Dr. Bunce left Bloomfield to come here as executive director of the convention, the congregation shortly thereafter voted Lamar in as their senior pastor, and he served as senior pastor of Bloomfield for about another six years before he himself was called here into town uh, to serve at the convention. You know, when I've observed pastoral searches in the past, it seemed that all of a sudden, one Sunday, there's someone in the pulpit, he preaches, and then we vote. What we have done, especially in this time of COVID, what we, um, as a pastoral search team, have discussed and decided and prayed about, what we want to do is give you an opportunity to get to know the man and his wife, even prior to him coming to the church to, to preach in the view of call. So what we've done is we've taped an interview with him, um, we've put together a small package that Drew, I believe, will be putting onto our website later on today that'll be available for the next couple of weeks so that you get to know them a little bit. Um, and we want you to also get a chance to send some questions in. We will remove duplicates and that sort of thing, and we'll give you a chance to have a question and answer time with him, probably over technology. Uh, again, because of time and COVID, but we haven't quite figured that last part out. So in summary, before I have these two gentlemen speak, I know I've been on here a long time. Lamar and Lynn will come to us in view of call, and I want to let you know they are New Mexicans. They are Albuquerque residents. They like Christmas. <laughs> <They've>, <laughs> New Mexicans know what I just said. <laughs> They have served in ministry positions involving children and youth work, worship pastor, executive pastor, senior pastor, leadership in the convention, and they continue to serve wherever needed to fill, fulfill pulpits. In fact, today, Lamar is um, supporting our church in Clovis, um, who is, I think, also in the middle of a, uh, I think a, a pastoral search or a worship pastoral search. So he has been traveling almost every week serving in Clovis and Carlsbad and places that need him. So um, pay attention, watch the website, and you'll get to know him even more. Ben. COVID. Well, good morning, Hoffman Town. What an exciting uh, message that is. The elders have met with Lamar. And we have watched sermons that he's done online, and we've reviewed the materials that he submitted to the pastoral search team. 
The elders have prayed over God's calling of Lamar, and we affirm moving forward with him preaching in view of call. I would just echo what my brother has said. We, uh, we met with Lamar, a very um, blessed person. And uh, myself and David, as being the pastors, are in full agreement with uh, going forward with him on the 13th in Louisville call. Next, we have a video from uh, Kirby, and he's going to give Good us morning. a... My name is Kirby Jefferson. I'm chair of the Hoppentown Church Council. In these unusual COVID-19 times, we will have to modify our process to call a new pastor. The church council has unanimously approved a temporary resolution adjusting our voting process to accommodate the restrictions spot about by the pandemic. We have also developed a process which will allow us to verify that only the membership votes will be counted, but will also maintain absolute confidentiality by using a third party in our process. Lamar and Lynn will be featured in a video discussing their background and Lamar's ministerial journey and focus, which would be available to review online. Additionally, some of Lamar's previous sermons will also be made available to listen to online. We encourage questions to be emailed to lamarquestions at hoffmantown.org. Lamar will respond to those questions in a live video broadcast on September 9th. Ballots will be emailed to all members one week prior to Lamar preaching. Some may be able to learn enough about Lamar and Lynn from the video discussion in the Q&A session and from hearing his previous sermons to have enough information to vote uh, prior to his sermon from the pulpit on September 13th. Those votes may be emailed, brought to the church and given to reception or mailed via the postal service the week between September 6th and the 13th. For those wishing to wait to hear Lamar's sermon on the 13th, those in attendance in person will be given a ballot prior to the service and they'd be able to drop that ballot off after Lamar has preached. For those watching online, there will be three options. They will be able to email their ballot back to the church on Sunday afternoon. They may bring the ballot by reception after the service and drop the ballot off again on Sunday afternoon the 13th. And for those that are not able to do either, they may call the church and ask that someone come by their house to pick up the ballot. Because of the membership validation process, only one vote per member will be accepted. All ballots must be in by 5 p.m. on September 13th. After the ballots are all verified, the ballots, less the names, will be given to the pastoral search committee to tally. A communication to the congregation on the voting results will be emailed immediately after the vote tally is completed. Please watch your email Sunday evening for the results. Remember, the bylaws require a 90% affirmative vote to call our new pastor. Thank you. Well, amen. <laughs> I want to thank Merv and uh, the, the Pastor Search Committee. They have uh, continuously served in a very honorable way. And uh, thank you for uh, Pastor John and his wife. And Lord, uh, just... Each week, he's been challenging us in his word, and that's a good amen. That's a good amen. So, everyone's dismissed. The doors are open in the back. Do high five, elbow highs, or whatever you want to call your highs. And That didn't sound right. But <laughs> amen. <laughs> you guys have a good day in the Lord.